Hey man, it's me, Kevin Smith, the annoying voice of podcasting, and you're listening to the non-annoying Three Guys in a Flick. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. We used to look up at the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, Interstellar. Beware, spoilers. Coming to you from some timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly library place inside of a black hole, my name is Don. And to my right, we have the comic book guy, John. All right, all right, all right. And to... (laughs) And to my left, we have the professor, Ken. Hello, everybody. And tonight, joining us for his first time on the show, this is Keenan. Hello. Tonight, we are talking about Interstellar. Interstellar comes to us from the Bronco Helmet, which was submitted by Keenan, and he is gracious enough to uh, come onto the show and talk about it with us. So, Keenan, why Interstellar? Um, well... I love Interstellar for many reasons, but I feel like this is one of my favorite movies. Um, I love Nolan, obviously. So when I was trying to choose a movie, it was going to be a Nolan movie. It was just deciding which one. Gotcha. So it landed. Uh, Comic book guy, had you seen this going into the show? I think I had seen bits and pieces of it, maybe the ending of it, and just never really figured out what the hell the movie meant. So it was kind of nice to watch it from beginning to end. And that's the benefit of why we do this. Yes, because you forced me to watch movies. Absolutely. And now I know that's why I picked the movie, so John would have to watch it. There you go. Yeah, and it was probably, what, some future they that told you to have me watch this movie? Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Future them or oh, they? Oh, you or... know what? We're you don't gonna, remember? We're, we're, we're going to get into that shit. Hang on. Hang on. Uh, Professor, is was this the first time you'd seen this film? No, I'd seen it before. Did you see it in the theater? I don't remember if it was in the theater or not. Wow. And you, But you're a big fan of Nolan, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah, let's yeah. go hop in the Tesseract and look to see if he saw it in the theater. Um. Yeah, but first we got to get to the black hole. He did. Oh, and that takes yeah. a little bit. That takes yeah, a little that's bit. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I remember seeing this in the theater and I remember being super stoked about seeing it because I, uh, I too am a big Christopher Nolan fan. And I remember coming out of it kind of going, what the fuck just happened? Yeah, it felt a little 2001 ish. A little bit. A little bit. Uh, and then, you know, it goes on to become one of Keenan's favorite movies and we go back and forth on it. And, and he, he, what did you tell me? You said you just don't want to do Interstellar because you don't want to have to think about it. It would be that or your typical complaint of it being too long. Okay. And, and that's fair because that is a typical complaint of mine. Uh, but I do have to say, going back and watching it last night, uh, it, I guess through the lens of what we do now. It flows easier. And it, I appreciated it so much more. So I'm excited to talk about it. Released on November 5th, 2014, Interstellar was directed by Christopher Nolan, screenplay by Jonathan Nolan and Christopher Nolan, and it stars Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway, Jessica Chastain, Bill Irwin, Ellen Bernstein, Michael Caine, 
and a bunch of other actors. How'd this movie do, Don? This movie was made for $165 million, and it looks to have brought in $774 million. That's not too bad, I guess. Not too bad at all. The uh, the year it came out, the box office that it got was uh, 182. Yeah, yeah. So it did make its it did make its initial money back, but the world market certainly uh, you know injected all that cash into it. Sure, sure. What was the biggest movie that year? 2014. Uh, 2014. Interstellar. No, <laughs> n- not not even in the top ten. Arrival. Uh, when did Avatar come out? It's or got no. Know. It's a Marvel movie. It's um. Infinity? Ultron? Guardians of the Galaxy. So Christopher Nolan being a uh, preferred director among us. Uh, John, how many, outside of the Dark Knight trilogy, how many Christopher Nolan movies have you seen? Honestly, I think if you're going to say outside of Dark Knight, maybe one or two. Uh, this being one, yeah. right? Uh, did you ever see Memento? No, but I did see The Prestige. Oh, okay. Okay. Professor, you are a Christopher Nolan guy. Outside of the Dark Knight trilogy, what is your favorite Christopher Nolan movie? Mm, potentially Inception, but um, Prestige is really, really good too. Yeah? Yeah. I like that. Um, it's always a hoot to go back and watch Memento. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Dunkirk. What about Insomnia? Do you ever see Insomnia with Pacino and Robin Williams? Yeah, saw it once. Way back in the day, VHS. Yeah. yeah, it's good. Good flick. I think I know the answer to this, but what about Tenet? Haven't seen it yet. John? No, I have not seen that yet. And which leads me to you. What's your favorite Christopher Nolan movie? Well, for the sake of this conversation, I'll say Interstellar, but if you ask me tomorrow, it might be Tenet. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I like all of them. Okay. Definitely more his newer stuff than, you know, Memento or Prestige. Sure. Listen to what a giant of a guy this is. This guy is, you know, when you start looking at in the year 2000, that was Memento. And then in 02 was Insomnia. Batman Begins in 05, Prestige in 06, Dark Knight 08, Inception 10. And then after that, you have the Dark Knight in 12, then Dunkirk, five-year wait, 2017. And then Tenet in 2020. But man, the 2000s, you know. Yeah, well, in between Dunkirk and The Dark Knight Rises is Interstellar. Yeah, yeah. So he there's a he tries to get one off every two years, and then the last couple of uh, years it's been a three year wait for us because yeah. Oppenheimer comes out this year. Yep, I heard there a rumor that they are really pushing on him to do an Interstellar too. Uh, I guess my next question would be uh, why. Or where did you hear that? Uh, or who was they? Well, <laughs> you go to Wikipedia and other places, they're talking about it, that there's some kind of script or story out there that's supposed to take place on the planet that's from the end of the movie and the repopulation of Earth and all that kind of stuff. Oh, I listened by the dozen. Yeah, it's just, it sounds dumb. I, that's why I think Nolan has been kind of putting it off. Or should just say no, yeah. right? Uh, what'd you guys think of Matthew McConaughey? I have to be honest, you know, and I, I said this when I first heard that we were going to be doing this movie, I groaned the fact that we were doing a Matthew McConaughey movie because I've never been a big fan of him. I always feel like he's the same character. And Don, you, you've argued with me before about this, but he's the same character, same the way he delivers his lines in every single movie. But you challenged me to find an actor who's not like that. You know, who doesn't, you know, have their thing and then they bring that to every movie. 
I thought overall there were points that Matthew got a little annoying to me with his kind of the way he laid back and every does everything. But the emotional parts and the emotional scenes that he delivered, I thought he did it pretty well. Yeah, yeah. What about you, sir? I don't mind Matthew McConaughey at all. Uh, I, I think uh, the first time I, I thought that he was really fun was probably uh, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. That, that was a fun watch. Uh, it was cool watching him in U571. Uh, he's solid in Dallas Buyers Club. You know, he got the Oscar for that. Reign of Fire. Also, I also liked uh, Lincoln Lawyer. Dallas hey. Buyers Club's a good one. Oh, and he was so sad, but that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I don't mind him at all. He's fine. Right on. What right about on. you? What about you? Uh, I enjoy Matthew McConaughey. I've enjoyed him since uh, Dazed and Confused, and I even... All right, all right, all right. <laughs> I think him and Renee Zellweger... I get older, are, and they stay the same age. What <laughs> that. <laughs> uh, I think him and Renee Zellweger do a decent job in that uh, new generation Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Even still, it's a horrible movie. Sure. But um, I like Matthew McConaughey in general. I think he's entertaining, and yeah, I think he's charming. So this movie had, I mean, some huge names in the cast: Michael Caine, uh, Anne Hathaway, John uh, Lithgow. John Lithgow, just amazing. What did you think of the rest of the cast? I think what kind of sets Nolan apart as well as his attention to realism, which we'll get into, uh, is his casting. Mm-hmm. I think every one of his movies are cast with uh, Michael Caine. Well, yeah. Well, there's that. Well, there's yeah. He has seven with Nolan, uh, but he's also Morgan Freeman wasn't in this one. No, but uh, Anne Hathaway was, and they were in The Dark Knight Rises together, you know? So he has his cast of characters, and I think they all brought their A game. Uh, I thought the cast was really good. Any standouts besides Matthew? Probably Jessica Chastain, I would say. I think her emotional arc as uh, Murph was pretty powerful. I could feel her anger mm-hmm. toward her father in just the little bits that she got, so I thought she did. A, I thought she brought her A game for sure. Did you say Matt Damon? Oh, no, I forgot all about Matt Damon. Yeah, he was the hidden one in the cast. Yeah, and I remember when I saw it in the theater and Matt Damon popped up, I went, oh, look, it's Matt Damon. I was going to say about uh, Jennifer, uh, Jessica Chastain, I, I thought she was such a badass in Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah. I, I think that's my favorite role for her. Yeah. What about you, good sir? Anyone stand out outside of Matthew if he's your favorite character? Uh, Matthew Damon, yeah. Yeah. I liked him. Excellent. I mean, he's he's generic, but he's a good actor. And he's such a small role, and it was good. Oh, he comes in and knocks it out of the park, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I didn't like the guy, but he is an antagonist that is one of the scariest ones because he believes what he is doing is right. He was part of the Lazarus mission. Yeah. Yep. Even though John Lithgow wasn't in a lot of the movie, it was really nice to see him in a more serious role. He's done a lot of humor in a lot of movies, and I, I kind of liked seeing him again back, get back to his serious roots. Uh, John Lithgow's great. Yeah, yeah. he was fun he, to see. Again. He's pretty sassy in this one. A little mm-hmm. bit, a little bit. He's a little sassy grandfather. And then there was Casey Affleck. How could you forget about Casey Affleck? Nah, I mean, I, I thought he was fine. I thought he was forgettable. The angry Dude. farmer. I, I every well every time they showed his face and he had the beard, I saw Ben. So, uh, like a. Younger, weirder version of Ben. Mm-hmm. A young Timothy Chalamet. Yeah. And I've said it on this podcast before. I'm a fan. I like the guy. I think he can act. I don't know him very well. Where is he from? Dune. Dune. Yeah. Oh, okay. So he's the uh, lead character in Dune. Yeah. Okay. And we have to put it in terms that he'll 
understand, right? Science fiction. Did you hear the story behind him in this movie? In Interstellar? No, I did not. Uh, Apparently, he thought his role was a lot bigger in the movie. And after he went to the screening and saw how much they cut him out of the movie... Uh, I guess, you know, he still filmed all of his scenes, but like the scene where Matthew McConaughey is watching the video monitor of his son, you know, talking about how much he misses his dad and all that. And they focused the whole scene on Matthew McConaughey's expressions and not on what uh, this guy had filmed on the screen. He went home and cried for an hour. It's a sad moment. I think he's crying because he wasn't. Yeah. I know. I know he is. <laughs> crying because he thought, like I said, he'd be more on screen. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of story to fit in when they get back and he's watching the video. Yeah, from from a filmmaker's perspective, I mean, it's a no-brainer. I uh, think. Because McConaughey, I mean, he sells that scene. Uh, those scenes, when he's breaking down, and we'll get to it, I mean, it's rough. I think the fact that if I got three seconds in a Christopher Nolan film, I'd be jumping for joy. I wouldn't care how much he cut my scene out. His, and he does get screen time. Because that's what I'm saying. So, he was in a Christopher Nolan film. What are we talking about? Hans Zimmer. What do you guys think of the score of this film? It's beautiful. Um, you know, I know Nolan tries to push, I guess, con- to make things fit contextually. Um, and, you know, we've heard in Inception the the blaring horn um, that kind of was, uh, you know, pretty stereotypical of any big movie. Uh, but with this one, I think they went to an organ. I'm not, I'm actually organ. not sure, but it was a little churchy. Yeah. Right? Like, um, and then what they did with the time, um, it was just, it was, it was amazing. I, I have to agree a hundred percent. Normally I leave soundtracks and scores to the two of you to kind of review and go over. And I just sit back and listen to what you guys have to say. But, uh, in doing some research about this movie and reading what went into it and Nolan working with Zimmerman, there's some brilliant stuff that they did in this film. Zimmer. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hans Zimmer is Zimmer. one of my favorite modern-day composers, if not my favorite. He just worked things into his into his score that we'll talk about a little bit later that just worked and they fit and it was it you know it matched what needed to happen. Yeah. Yeah, Hans Zimmer, he's he's kind of an 800-pound gorilla, you know, doing the uh, the Batman trilogy. Uh, he's he's the music of the Pirates movies, Gladiator, uh, Man of Steel, uh, as well as uh, The Lion King, Prince of Egypt. Get this though, Hans Zimmer has over a hundred Simpson episodes under his belt as well. Wow, nice. nice. What's up with that? Nice. Well, now I like him that much more. Yeah. See, he's only, um, he's only won two Academy Awards. He got one for Dune, and he also got one for Lion King. And I think Hans Zimmer single-handedly saves the Man of Steel. But, oh, yeah. But we'll get into that a different time as well. I wonder if he's doing Gladiator 2. Christopher Nolan. How many Academy Awards has he won? Two. Zero. Zero. Oh, Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan has zero Academy Awards. Well, he's been how, nominated once. Look how long it took Scorsese. True. Fair point. And uh, his nomination was for The Dark Knight. Dunkirk. Oh, he did not get nominated for The Dark Knight, which is why the Academy went from five films to ten films. That's yep. what happened. I think, actually, I think they call it the Christopher Nolan rule. Speaking of awards, wasn't this nominated for a few things? Uh, yeah, it nom- got nominated and it won for some stuff. So it got nominated for Best Original Score, Best Production Design, Best Sound Editing, and Best Sound Mixing. And it did win one for Best Visual Effects. I'm surprised it didn't win more. 
in this movie, they bring up different dimensions and the fifth dimension and all that. Did you guys follow that whole thing, the science behind that? I tried, um, but it's a little bit above my pay grade, so I just kind of went with it. I was watching because I was trying to do some research on the science, you know, the science of this movie and trying to understand something. And I found a video that explained it. I thought one of the best explanations I had ever heard, which is think of this movie or think of the different dimensions as a book. Uh, you can basically open up a book and you can go to any page. So that's like the first three dimensions is, you know, the different movements. You can go wherever you want in the book. You can time travel in the book by going forward pages and backward pages. You know, that's your time travel. So that's your fourth dimension. Your fifth dimension of gravity is you can drop the book. And if you drop the book, you're literally dropping all the other dimensions. So that's why gravity is above everything else. You could be watching the movie version then, not reading the book. So I just thought that was kind of a way to cover all the dimensions is to think of it like a book. I like it. That's good. I, I applied it to um, death, right? Because when you die, you know, who knows what happens, but you might have a, a soul or consciousness that lives on. And, you know, what Anne Hathaway says after she fucks up on Miller's planet is time can't run backwards. Uh, you can stretch it, bend it. Um, and I think in our human form, all we know is what we experience till we die. And then we won't know until we get there. It's almost like yeah. the event horizon yeah. of a black hole. Yeah. There you go. I just waited for it to be spoon fed to me on the screen. And I got to say the second time around professor, I'm with you and he did it. Last thing on the fifth dimension. Uh, I've theorized this. I don't know if I understand it. I'm not going to quantify it. I theorized the first time I saw, it, I don't know why uh, I thought that it could have been uh, Matthew McConaughey's wife who had passed hmm. away and she, From she the had brain tumor. Yeah. Yeah. She had died and maybe her consciousness transcended to that dimension that, can be perceived once you're dead and she would understand the the relationship between the father and daughter to help create that tesseract create that bridge yeah uh well let me put you this this is kind of you know i've like the research that i was doing to try to understand it again with the dimensions is think of the first dimension as moving kind of forward and backwards the second dimension is moving right and left the third dimension is moving up and down the fourth dimension is time so anything to do with time going backwards and forwards in time, that's the fourth dimension. The fifth dimension is gravity. Anything to do with gravity, uh, basically uh, gravitational waves and all of that, that's what this movie is, is supposedly about is that gravity can affect time. And that's why going by a black hole or having a black hole by a planet, the gravity from the black hole can affect time and cause time to move differently for whatever has the higher gravity. Some of the interesting things, I never even realized this, of gravity affecting time. Did you know that if you were on a space station versus person on Earth, that the person on the space station, time will move faster for them than it will on Earth by just a few like microseconds. I, I had heard that there is a variance. So that's supposed to go along with Einstein's theory of relativity in that gravity can affect time. So if you are, like example in this movie, if you're on a planet that is heavily affected by you know, the gravitational effect of a black hole, then time, you know, as they said, would move much slower. The one flaw in this movie is they talk about, I think it was on the 
and we'll kind of get more into this, but on the planet that is the ice planet, no, I'm sorry, the, uh, the water planet, where time, I think, is 17 hours for every minute or something like or every second that you're on or on the planet. Seven years for every hour you're on the planet. Something like that. Oh, it, that's what it is. Okay. Well, according to scientists, for that much gravity to be available, to have an effect on that planet to cause such a time slowdown, they would have been crushed. They would have been turned into pulp. So By a wave? No. no, literally just the gravity on the planet. It's like standing on Jupiter. You would have basically just been a puddle uh, because the gravity would have been so strong on that planet to cause such a time dilation. They said it was 130% yeah, of which Earth's gravity. They would need something like five, 600% to cause that many years to pass. Because of the gravitational pulling, yeah. right? Our, our, yeah. our structure is not capable of withstanding that kind of pull. Gotcha. Yeah. So that that was just one of a little scientific flaw, but who knows what the reality is because we don't know science is, you know, we just have theories about things and we haven't proven everything yet. So for all we know, they're 100% right in this movie. Except yeah. for one other issue in this movie that Kip Thorne brought up. Oh, do tell. Well, it'll come up later when we get to the ice planet. Thank you, John. Thank you. Hopefully everybody's awake. Wake up. Yeah, so that was your 15-minute uh, science lesson by uh, the comic book guy and our guest. Wait, one more thing. Just to make sure John and I are understanding it the same, the, the black hole in the movie effectively is working very much like our sun. Um, similar. Uh, it's not producing heat or anything well, like uh, that? We, uh, it's a black hole versus like a hot yeah. burning sun. So physically, but as far as the gravitational pull... Yes. And yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly what. And I've always been fascinated by black holes in that, uh, you know, I always thought if something got too close to a black hole, they would be basically sucked right into the black hole. But I guess it has to do with uh, space, you know, how much space it takes up, things like that. Like, I read something interesting the other day that said, did you know that if Jupiter just tomorrow turned into a black hole, it would not suck all the other planets in because it would still have the same mass and the same pull as it does now. Nice. So it's kind of interesting. That is that is interesting. Yeah. Did you know that if I put my foot in a bowl of water, it will prune? Uh, so there you go. We need to adjust his humor setting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you take it down to forty <laughs> percent? That's a good callback. Nicely done. Hey, Keenan. Do you know what time it is? Time for you to get a watch. No, I think it's trivia time. Oh. <laughs> This is the point in our podcast with our continuing pursuit to crown the master of movie trivia. So, therefore, I have prepared a series of questions related to today's movie. Please wait until I finish each question before answering. And, Keenan, you are more than welcome to join in. Thank you. What natural disaster is happening on Earth that will eventually cause the human race to go extinct? A blight. I think that might have been a three-way tie. I put dust storms or the blight. Cooper is asked by NASA to explore three planets in a different galaxy. He is told by Professor Brand that there is a plan A and a plan B. What does the Professor Brand tell Murphy at the end of his life? The there is no plan A. There was always a plan B. Do not go gentle into that good night. Ooh. I'll, I'll give it to both of you on that one. But, but I was going for what uh, Don was. Don said. I couldn't remember if you asked for the last thing he said to her or what he said to her. What he said to her related to plan A and plan B. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, that 
uh, do not go in gentle into the good night. This is, it kept ringing a bell. I'd heard it before and not the first time I Isn't watched it. Isn't it Shakespeare? It's a poem. Well, it's from Dylan right, no, Thomas. Well, sorry, huh? I think it's Dylan Thomas wrote it or Dylan. Okay, you guys are giving me way too much credit. Clearly, I heard it in a movie. Does anybody, does that ring a bell to anyone else in any movie? Yes, but I don't remember which one. Kenneth Branagh? That, see, that's kind of where my head went. No, Rodney Dangerfield in Back to School. Oh, he, he quotes oh, yes. that at the end that's panel. Right. That's right. Yeah. Sorry to, dig, sorry to derail can, us. Can I get back to my trivia? Oh, for fuck's sakes. What does the message from the ghost say in Murphy's room? Stay. And the coordinates to NASA. Yeah, that's the dust says that. Uh, what planet in our solar system is nearest to the wormhole? Jupiter. Saturn. Jupiter. It was Saturn. It was Jupiter in 2001 uh, because they couldn't do the rings for special effects. That's what it was. So they had to. So they basically paid tribute to that movie in this movie by making it Saturn. Which theoretical physicist acted as executive producer Kip for Thorne. Interstellar? Kip Thorne. I'm going with Keenan. In the beginning of the fucking competition, you say, please wait till all questions have been asked. Did he wait? Thank you. The I was going to saw myself out for doing that. <laughs> the guest is always right. <laughs> Over fuck's sakes. You know that rule. How Whatever. long is a day on Dr. Man's planet? 42. No, wait. 67 hours? Or Very 60, good. 67 yeah, days. So 67 hours. You were right. Yay, professor. And for the final question. About fucking time. What does the acronym TARS stand for? Theory and Relativity Settings? T-A Recognition System. It stands for Technically Artificial Robotic Robotics. System. Robotics. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, now, an interesting note for all the fans out there of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which I am definitely one of, did you know that the TARS robot was modeled after Marvin from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? No. Uh, the white? Uh, robot? Yeah, the one that was always depressed. and uh, he, Wasn't he voiced by Alan Rickman in the movie? In the movie, he was yeah, Alan yeah, yeah. Rickman. I know uh, so about. the whole idea of a uh, AI with a really strong emotion was one of the models for this, gotcha. this movie. So according to my calculations, uh, I think Keenan won this round. So that keeps Ken in the lead. Yeah, well, according to my calculations, you fucking suck. I don't, I don't think either of you can do math. <laughs> In 2067, humanity is facing global extinction following a global famine caused by ecocide. It has abandoned scientific pursuits such as space exploration. Ex-NASA pilot Joseph Cooper is forced to work as a farmer. Cooper experiences a gravitational anomaly in his daughter Murph's bedroom. He deduces it to be a pattern of GPS coordinates and arrives at a secret NASA facility headed by Professor Brand. Brand explains to Cooper that they are trying to find an exoplanet capable of supporting life and that he is working on a gravity equation to provide a way to transport large numbers of people there. He enlists Cooper to pilot an exploratory spacecraft, the Endurance, with a crew of three scientists, Romley, Doyle, and Brand's daughter, Amelia. This is humanity's last chance. There are no more resources to mount another expedition. 
A wormhole has been found near Saturn, enabling the ship to pass through to another galaxy to search for a new home. On the other side, they investigate three planets orbiting a supermassive black hole, Gargantua, each one previously checked by a NASA scientist explorer. All right, so what do you guys think of the opening of this film? We are introduced to our planet and what it has become. Yeah, it's a cold open, and we're listening to a series of interviews. Yeah. Which is interesting because did you notice Murph has the first words in the movie and Murph has the last words in the movie? My dad was a farmer. Yeah. yeah. Well, I didn't notice that until last night, but the first time I saw it, no. But it's a clever way, you know, Miss Nolan. And then we are introduced to Matthew McConaughey's character. He, he wakes, wakes up, up from a bad dream. Yep. Crash. Yeah. Did you catch a little bit of foreshadowing? Probably. At this point? Well, yeah, because the way that uh, Cooper uh, is understanding it when he's walking through NASA with Dr. Brand. Um, it, uh, he was a pilot and there was a gravitational anomaly that tripped his flyby wire or whatever. Um, so it, when he was trying to relate it to his experience, he could, you know, make sense of it. Well, the, that is one, but one of the specific ones I was talking about was Murph kind of comes into his room after he wakes up from his nightmare and she says, I thought you were my ghost. Huh? Which is basically hinting that, oh my God, he's going to be the ghost in the end. Does he, does she say my ghost? It's either my ghost or the ghost, something I, like I, that. I don't know why you're looking at me. And then we are introduced kind of to the life, uh, and like I said, the his, the... his little family. Yep, and the way the state of the world is. And, and I have always really appreciated Nolan's realism in his movies, and I think that he... We are set in kind of a post-apocalyptic future, a little bit. Dystopian, right? yeah. We we are we are headed on the down downhill slope as a uh, as a species, and he does it so subtly. We don't need you know a glimpse of things that we would get like in the Road Warrior or you you know what I'm trying to say, like a wasteland or something. It's it's very subtle and very real. The world he is bringing to yeah, us. Th- there's there's no lawlessness. We also don't need to see how they got there. We just need to see they're there. Yeah, we just need to know this is where we're at. Exactly. Yeah. And John Lithgow, when they're one of their conversations on the porch, uh, John Lithgow said, when I was a kid, it seemed like every new day they were releasing a new gadget or a new toy, and there's six billion people. Every single one of them had to have it all. Um, so, you know, when I saw it, I kind of was like, okay, he's kind of like the, the current generation as an old man. Right. Right. And so as far as tying it back to realism, you know. Yeah. yeah. One thing I appreciate, and I think we've talked about this before in other movies, is the way they relate to us what's going on without just having someone tell us exactly what's going on. Because we get, you know, Matthew McConaughey kind of talking a little bit about the farm and everything and how, and then, you know, they go to the school and deals with the, the teachers and all that, the principal and I think the teacher, and we get a little bit more information about what's going on. We learn that, uh, you know, that Matthew McConaughey wanted to be a pilot and all that, but now he's being forced to be a farmer. We learned that things like uh, the NASA landing on the moon, well, now the government's claiming that's faked because they're trying to keep people grounded and focused on farming because 
there's a blight out there that is killing off all the crops and corn is the one of the last ones to go. So they need more farmers out there. You know, we, we get, we pick up on these little things that are going on of what this earth has turned into and how they're on the downward spiral. They're all worried about their place in the dirt. I have to say one of my favorite scenes in this film is when uh, Matthew McConaughey's Cooper has to go to school and he talks to the principal and uh, Murph's teacher. Uh, just the disbelief in his face of what what they're teaching the kids. One it, thing I didn't catch my first and second go around, I had to read about it. Did you catch why Murph got into a fight? Uh, for bringing in one of uh, the, Cooper's old textbooks on the lunar landing? Yeah. yeah. Basically, of people denying the lunar landing. Yeah. So yeah. I, I didn't catch that the first time, so I thought that yeah. was interesting. So the school that they're at are, you know, teaching the current generation or the everybody worried about their place in the dirt that you know um it, it was, was all faked it, it was, was propaganda mm-hmm. right yeah yeah, yeah but bef- but before we get to the scene uh they see a drone which is i think the first introduction that we have about the downward slide of things because once the the drone is on the ground where'd it come from it must have been flying around up there for years yeah right and then the uh principal goes you're at the asian drone Fighting pilot star and um, right. Coop corrects him because uh, no, we Indi- f- it's Indian. <laughs> it's Indian. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, we had a flat tire. Yeah. Oh yeah. But yeah. you had time to stop and yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you yeah. understand why the drone was on the path that it was on? I had to look this up too. Because of the gravitational anomaly. Yes, because of there's a uh, all because nice of guess. the grav- gravitational anomalies that are happen at Coop's house. Machinery is now being drawn to his house so that drone was flying towards his house and they even briefly just really quickly talk about the combines those big trucks yeah do you notice that they're all being pulled to his house yes i noticed so every right single one of that that's our big hint at this is the focus of the movie the house is the focus that's yeah that's literally right after he walks out of the the principal's office and tells murph that he got her suspended i love that line so matthew mcconaughey's solution to murph's behavior problem is to take her to a ball game, and at she's first on a, a I was baseball kick, and I, and I was uh, first thinking, God, this reminds me of uh, Field of Dreams, and then when they cut to the Yankees in the Yankee uniform, I'm like, wait a minute, is that the New York Yankees? Mm-hmm. And then again, that's just that realism of this is how it would probably be if this is where we were at in the world. Did mm-hmm. you so, catch yeah. all the references to corn related food? Probably because they were serving popcorn at the game. Uh, when we see at the house and they're serving a meal, it's served with cornbread and corn like drinks and yeah, well, uh, everything is corn. Yeah, so uh, corn is one of the last things they have left. Yeah, they lost wheat, then they lost okra, mm-hmm. and now corn's next. And then uh, with this dust storm, uh, they got to make it back to the house. And uh, what'd you guys think of this whole? Did you close your windows? And then Murph immediately thinks, no, fuck, I didn't. So she runs upstairs and McConaughey comes up and this is kind of where everything kicks off. What do you think about this whole ghost side story kind of line going on? Oh, I thought it was, I thought it was a natural progression. I mean, if you can't, if you don't understand strange happenings, I think uh, a person's maybe one or first or second thing to go to is a ghost mm-hmm. you murph. know what i mean depending on what you believe in and what you're seeing uh so i thought that murph thinking it was a ghost makes a lot of sense because we know that matthew mcconaughey's character is more scientific based so he would want to come 
to the uh, analytically because he kept conclusion pushed. of it, and he even tells her, "Okay, you think it's a ghost? I need all the things." Sci- Why? The scientific method, yeah. right? Well, Murph in, later in the movie, she goes, "My dad called it a ghost because they thought I was scared of it, but I was never scared of it." Right. So yeah, I th- I thought that it being in the story the way that it was, I knew it was integral to propelling the story along and it was going to be a play a significant uh, part to the story. So I, I knew it was, it was something that is not just going to be overlooked. One thing I appreciate about it was uh, the way they portrayed the ghost in the beginning and then the reveal at the end is that we didn't see a lot of what this ghost was doing. We just saw the after effects. We saw the ship broken. We saw the dust on the floor. You know, we didn't, and we, you know, heard that the books kept getting falling off. The, we didn't see them actually happen. So I kind of appreciate at the end that then we see, oh, this is how all of those things actually happened. Yeah, he's wrapping it up for us. Yeah, he's so. connecting the dots. And then, um, you know, Murph leaves the window open and all the, the dust comes in. And, and I, I liked this bit and... I liked how they were showing us how gravity works. I liked the bit where it all clicked and they figured out what it was and then they take off, right? Mm-hmm. Once he's done praying to it. Yeah. Yeah, which is what uh, Lithgow says. What do you think of the whole them going to the NASA base and finding the NASA base? Um, I, I thought it was fine. Murph, that little shit, stole away and but you kind of had to see it coming oh, what right? i loved about that scene was uh yeah you know he kept telling him you stay here you stay here you're not coming with me did you notice when he saw her come out of the blanket at first he was surprised and then there was like a little smile on his face yeah like he was proud of her yeah. oh he definitely was because uh he goes make yourself useful yeah i mean yeah and yeah, she's it's never i'm gonna and <laughs> let's be real he could have turned the truck around and taken her home, mm-hmm. right? So I don't think it really bothered him that much. Yeah. The one thing I didn't catch is there's a callback later on in the movie when he's heading to NASA to do his big trip that he's flying away. Did you notice he checked under the blanket? Yeah. I didn't catch that, I think, the first and second time. I had to read about that one, too. Oh, yeah, no, I, I caught it right away. So I thought that was kind of a, he's kind of hoping she would be there. I have that moment every time I leave the house without Rose, the dog. So they figure out its coordinates to NASA. But they don't know it's NASA, and they go on the trip, and they get ushered in. What did you guys think of the introduction to the NASA people, and then just kind of how McConaughey was reacting before well, the I, big meeting? I thought that the, uh, I don't know, I, I guess in general, I thought that the introduction to NASA, how the fuck did you find your way out here? Because nobody knows where this is. It was very valid. Well, NASA oh, wasn't yeah. even supposed to exist anymore. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Because nobody wanted to fund NASA when they couldn't put food on their table. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when they show up, NASA's like, what the fuck? But it turns out that uh, Coop knows the head of NASA, I guess, at the the time. Well, the leading scientist. Yeah. uh, Professor Brand. But he meets his daughter, Anne Hathaway, first. One thing I appreciate about this story is a lot of times... In some stories, you have some mysterious force that is leading somebody somewhere. My first thought was Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you know, where we have this alien force, and then nobody believes him that there's some mysterious force that's leading you somewhere. Right as he basically is being questioned by them, they're trying to get out of him. Did they lead you here? Was it them that got you here? Because they already know about them or they, that there's somebody out there helping them. Because they, they? they sent the Lazarus mission. Right. And I love when he, they created uh, the wormhole too. Yeah. 
Oh, when uh, Michael Caine is, you know, talking about the Lazarus missions, there, there's a camera pan across the crew, and it's like a millisecond that they when they get to Dr. Man, it's just... Right. So they, they, they I learned, noticed that because I learned his picture. Yeah, I, I know that. I noticed that because I knew it was Matt Damon. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, they because they they had already or the scientists and NASA had already known that somebody created the wormhole, and they referred to him as I think they or them, uh, and so they were trying to get out of him that if they led you here and they gave you the coordinates, you're meant to be here and you're meant to be the pilot of the ship. Sure. And so uh, I like the bit where he says, okay, I'll tell you what really happened, but you guys aren't going to believe me. And then they go into all this. And then uh, Michael Caine turns around and says, we need a pilot. And uh, we get the story of plan A and plan B. Right. Plan B reminded me a lot of Alien Covenant. Different podcast for a different time. Mm -hmm. I like how lighthearted at the moment when the two plans are explained to him that uh, Professor Brand says, that's why plan A is so much more fun. Yeah. Yeah. Did you catch the the name connections with the different pilots or different uh, astronauts and everything? No. Were they part of the alphabet? No. Uh, <laughs> three of them, if you specifically look at Cooper, Amelia, and Miller. Amelia Earhart. They all shared names of D.B. Miss- Cooper. Missing cases of individuals who were never found. As you write, D.B. Cooper, Amelia Earhart, and Glenn Miller. I don't know who the fuck Glenn Miller was. The big band leader, Glenn Miller? Big band uh, musician. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. I never knew he so, went missing. Yeah, three people who went missing. Oh, cool. So um, uh, McConaughey's Cooper meets everybody, decides that he's going to pilot the ship, and now him and Murph go home, and he's got to tell... Well, he's already told Murph he's leaving. But he's trying to make it right. Right. I mean, that's got to be fucking rough. Well, the rough part, and I thought it was a little bit cold when he says, hey... You know, when I come back, I'm probably going to be the same age as you. That's right there telling your daughter, I'm not going to be back for like 30 years. Yeah, well, he indirectly tells her he has no idea when he's coming back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's got to be rough for anybody. And yeah. then uh, when he says that we might be the same age, that's when she realizes that nobody has any idea if and or when he's coming back. And she gets more pissed off mm-hmm. and she throws the watch. Well, she also brings up the fact that she got a message from the ghost that said, stay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I guess... He does send that. He sends it through the bookcase. When right, because yeah. at that... Well, we'll get there. Yeah. What bookcase? What bookcase? Um, so he leaves. He goes out. And then Lifgow says, did you make things right with Murph? And he's like, yeah, kind of. And then he says goodbye to Tom. What were you going to say there, Professor? I was going to say that uh, I, I like the line that he delivers when he says, I can't be your ghost right now. Yeah. Again, a little bit of foreshadowing. Because he can be her ghost later. Uh, is it a little bit of foreshadowing or is it just foreshadowing? Well, I don't want the professor to jump over the table at me. Why? You've already said it. It's yeah. What we're looking for is when you don't say it. Well, I, I thought I only get like one time per podcast. Uh, this coming from the guy who's given us 16 musicals in the last 12 weeks. And, and none of them were Chitty Chitty Bang Bang from what I understand. So, so No, but that, I'm putting that on the list. Oh, I'll be on that one. And, and the last thing that happens when Coop leaves the room, a book drops. Right, and he looks. Because he sees himself walking out. The next shot we got, Coop is in the rocket, right? No prep, just right to the rocket taken off from the platform. And I hope so, because we're already I like an hour it. into this film, right? I love that. It's yeah. the end of part one, or like at least in my mind, is the ship leaving the Earth. Sure, 
Sure. And we get some narration and they take off. And what is it? It's two. It's it's two years to Saturn. And then they figure out whatever. So we know that they're going to be asleep for two years. Mm -hmm. Did you catch uh, when they docked with endurance, what the shape of endurance was? A donut? Penis. It was purposely made to look like a clock with 12 pods all around. So basically, there is a lot of time references in this movie, that being one of the biggest glaring ones. You think? Mm -hmm. Movie's about time. Yeah. So anyway, they were basically flying on a giant clock. Awesome. Uh, I didn't think clock, but now that you say that, I see clock. Mm -hmm. So... (laughs) So they have to take a they have to take the nap is what they say. What did you guys think of Nolan's way of hypersleeping as opposed to say what you see in aliens and everything else? I was curious about the water bit. Wouldn't you be a shriveled up prune? I guess not. I don't know. Who He's knows? He's in a plastic bag. And and the other thing is, do they have a zipper on the inside? They must have they must have a zipper that they zip themselves up on the inside cuz the last person to go to sleep <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would think somehow so. it it Makes seals sense. like a wax seal or something. Because you notice when they got, I think, Doctor Man out of it, they had to pull like a rip cord. Yeah. 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 Uh, but an interesting thing you talk about the water. I was trying to read up on this as well, and what actually happens is when that all closed up, they were instantly frozen. I was going to so say it's it, like an Austin Powers. Yeah. It was just an, an instant thing. So it wasn't that they were in the water the whole time; they were frozen solid. Kind of like Han and Carbonite. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. So eventually, like, the process was hot water was introduced to melt them out of it. Good. Gotcha. I think it was kind of reminded me more of um, the Stallone movie. Demolition Man? Demolition Man. Oh, there you go. There you go. That was a fun watch. It's Austin Powers for me. With the warm goo. We get to listen to uh, Coop's first message from home, but no message from Murph. Yep. Yep. Which was heartbreaking. But important yes yes and so they go to sleep then they wake up and they figure out they're by this wormhole i really dug uh, on a small side note uh rom he's he's talking about his anxieties about you know what's going on and where things are at and uh coop gives him his uh his little headset to listen to did you in in dramamine yeah, but do you remember that moment? Yeah, yeah. It, and what? And all it, all it was was the sound of crickets and distant thunder. He tells him a story about some uh, fishermen who don't know how to swim, or uh-huh. some of the long. I don't know. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, he gives him like that analogy where if they're in a boat. If they fall out of the boat, like don't know how to swim, but these people are amazing at what they're doing in the boat. You know? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good analogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, as it turns out, after they pop out by Saturn, uh, and because of the black hole, that will take him to three planets. Well, I love the when they actually showed us this wormhole, because we see in all other movies, wormholes are always some kind of flat, or in the Marvel movies, it's a it's a pentagram, I believe, or kind of like a grid. Yeah, they, made, they explained that it's a sphere, and yeah. the way they explained it made sense, and when the camera goes by it, and you see the sphere, you're like... Okay, so now if it were me, and not that I'm a pilot or anything, it's like uh, you would enter into Earth because Earth is a sphere. Well, right. So, well, if you also think about it, uh, at first, when I think I first saw this movie, I thought the sphere was reflecting out everything that was around it. What we're actually seeing is everything that is around the sphere on the other side. Yeah. So, if you've ever played with a 360 camera, 
360 cameras have something called, I believe it's called planet mode, something like that, where you can take everything that's uh, seen by the 360 camera and turn it and convert it into a circle into just a severe a sphere and that's exactly what they're seeing is everything that you would see if you were to do a 360 view uh on the other side is what you're seeing in the sphere and i thought that was kind of a cool concept cool beans there's a there's a painting or something it's black and white the guy has the uh like a, he's holding a ball i don't know what it is uh but it's the same concept when they go into the wormhole did it feel like uh 2001 space odyssey um, remind you of that effect of traveling through warp time? No, not really. I think that the way Nolan does it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it was fun to watch. Uh, a realism note: um, when they were filming the movie, Nolan wanted to attach the cameras to the spaceship. So um, the the camera was on the physical object, and then so. Uh, you would use green screen or, or like when they're flying off the off Miller's planet, anytime the spaceship is moving, the camera is actually attached to the spaceship. And that's what Kubrick did in 2001. So any of the spaceship, you know, uh, scenes that you're seeing, um, it, that was very intentional by Nolan, um, to kind of create that realism and then also pay homage to, well, it's, Kubrick. it's his, one of his favorite all time, favorite movies. Another favorite all time movie, John. The black hole. The black hole. See, that's what I love about that is the fact that I thought, I think Disney's original black hole created all these concepts for science that we get interstellar through. You know, the whole idea of the multiverse and other universes through the black hole and the gravitational, everything's pulled in and little robots that are sassy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, that was interstellar before interstellar. There you go. So as they go through the wormhole, they then come across, you know, the first planet. And there's a discussion of because it's so close to the black hole and because there is such a large gravitational effect, I think it's 130% of what's on Earth, uh, that time is going to move very differently. And they figure out that for every second, I think you're on the planet, 17 hours passes on Earth. Well, what or, or seventeen second. minutes? Yeah, well, 17. the 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 way they put it to us is for every hour they're on the planet, you're losing seven years. Which, yeah. Yep. Which breaks down to about forty days a minute. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. So they go down. They go down because uh, Miller's findings were promising. Mm-hmm. Right. Water. Right. And so when they get down there, eh, not so much. The first planet is an ocean world of shallow water. Romley remains in orbit while the others take a probe to the surface. The NASA explorer is found dead, and Doyle is swept away by a tidal wave generated by Gargantua's gravity. The tide floods the probe's engines, but they dry out enough for a liftoff before the probe is destroyed. They return to the Endurance after only an hour but 23 years have passed due to the time dilation caused by Gargantua's gravity. Murph has become a scientist and begun working with Brand. A dying Brand confesses to her that he lied about being close to a solution of the gravity equation. He puts his hopes on Cooper's team finding a habitable planet and establishing a space colony using pre-fertilized eggs. 
So, of course, they have a, you know, a difficult landing, all that. They finally get down to the planet, and they're standing in three feet of water. One thing I didn't catch right away was, again, we talk about the brilliance of Zimmer's music. Did you catch the ticking of the clock during yep. his music and when the mm-hmm. music kind of died off? Yeah. Yep. Did you catch the significance of the ticking? Do you mean it was like a countdown? It, no. It was like a clock. The ticking happened every 1.5 seconds. That actually represented 17 hours on Earth. So every time you hear that tick, 17 hours has gone by on Earth. Yeah, would have never put that together. Never in a million years. So I love the fact that between Nolan and Zimmer, that they came up with that idea. That was kind of a brilliant idea. Because now if you rewatch the movie, you can think about, as each of those ticks happen, how much time is going by. So you're saying you'll watch it again? I might actually watch it again. What did you guys think of this whole bit? I thought that the uh, the water bit was you should have left right away. I understand that that uh, they had to stick around for a little bit, but I thought, okay, <laughs> there's nothing here. The fact that they happened to find the equipment, okay, I guess you want to grab that, but boy, oh boy, I I I don't know if I would have stuck around for that. Well, they had to stay around. I mean, they they didn't know that the waves were coming, right? They and thought they were mountains, I guess. When they when they all screw up, uh, or when they get. Uh, down from the wave and um okay but you're you are covering you are right where you're supposed to be and there's nothing nothing they're they're where they're supposed to be yeah well, i know so but when and in, in reality curiosity and I, killed the cat well i'm kind of with the professor here what do you think that information is going to tell you well there that was, you that, didn't already have that sent you to the planet i know and this is this is where anne hathaway's character needs to screw up there is one thing on that planet that is a big hint to us of get the hell out of there. That big is, wave? No. All the wreckage that is around them. Did you notice as they're walking around in that water, all the floating pieces? Well, that was the other ship. Yeah. So yeah. right there, they should know this other lady didn't make it. Yeah, well. That like, her like, ship is well, gone. That, like, like, on that planet, it only happened minutes ago or hours ago. Yeah, because sure. literally, and, and I read this, and I haven't seen it. I saw a picture, a freeze frame of it. But as they enter into the atmosphere, supposedly you can see like a little splash down in the water on the planet, which is supposed to represent literally as they came into the atmosphere, that first ship crashed. And you're so they are minutes behind her crash because of the time dilation. It would be interesting to go back and look at An interesting reveal that I got as well during this moment is why the heck is TARS, why do these robots walk like this? It just seems so clunky and awkward. Do, do you handle stairs very well? You know, a, a rocky terrain. But then TARS, go get, you know, go get Brand. And then we watch, you know, just, you know, quickly, quickly. It's like, oh, look at that. And Turns into like roll- the wheel. And when they're rolling around, uh, Landing on the butt or coming down from the wave, he grabs Brand and like secures her so she's not bouncing around the ship. Yeah, I noticed that. Did you notice uh, the shape of Tars? What that was uh, modeled after? A gas pump, a, a rectangle, a candy bar, the obelisk from two thousand one. Makes sense. So uh, they figure out that it's a wave. They're trying to get back to the ship, and poor Doyle. I mean, seconds or I guess Moments. days, days really, if you think about it. Yeah. I don't know. But he, he knew just it gets was a sham. Did he know? It's never it's never really revealed that yeah, but any of them knew. When they're discussing going down to the planet, um, they're they're discussing time as a resource and the way that Doyle is trying to promote going somewhere, 
um, it keys Cooper into, okay, I don't know if I trust you because Matthew McConaughey, he, he points at him really slowly when he says something. And it's because you have to understand that at that point in the movie, Doyle is his plan. A is their plan B. Right. And right. so you get that, that moment where Matthew McConaughey is like, I don't know if I trust you, buddy. Um, and so, you know, I think it had he survived and would have had a completely different story, but he had to go. Yeah. Well, <laughs> one by one, right? Well, they always, I figured they always have these extra characters to die early to make us feel that this is real. This, this has real consequences. There are real stakes at this. Yes, sure. exactly. Sure. Now, the, here's the next question. When they leave the planet and we see the body floating, is that the body of Doyle or is that the body of the previous astronaut? You I choose. Get, but well, when, when they get down from the wave, McConaughey is all pissed and he goes, uh, we have the survival skills of a Boy Scout troop or something yeah. like that. So, you know, kind of they, yeah, they have this realization that like, oh, my God, what are we doing? So they make it back up to the ship uh, after barely escaping. I, I like the camera work and the visuals we got of them trying to ride the wave. I felt like it was a, a Matthew McConaughey surf movie at this point. And who better to surf the fucking wave than Matthew McConaughey, I would counter with. So they get out, they're up, and uh, they dock, and we find out that it's 23 years, four months, and... Eight days. Did you feel bad for Romley at all? Oh, absolutely. I felt bad. Why wouldn't you? Why? Yeah. I was going to say, he'd just been up there by himself for 23 years. Yeah. And I think he even tells Cooper that he did the deep sleep a couple times. Why wasn't he a little more cuckoo? He seemed to be, he seemed to be pretty, pretty with it. I, I thought he gave a little vibe of cuckooness. And I think it was the way he was dressed that gave me the cuckooness. But the casual, yeah, the the robe, the dress, the business casual. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the twenty years or twenty three years of messages that were left for them? This is what kind of breaks my heart, right? And and again, McConaughey does such a great job selling this because we get to see Tom as Chalamet, then as Affleck, and we get to find out he gets married, has a child, the child dies, he gets to experience that through video, and still no Murph until this is this is fantastic this is this is nolan right here um so when they're on the bed and she is telling him or he's trying to explain that they don't they nobody knows when they're coming back he said we might even be the same age um once casey affleck's video stops there's just a black screen and he's just kind of sitting there um, so to me, in my mind, it's like, you know, all these years of recorded messages, you know, the, the screen goes blank and then that's it. That's it. Right. But he sits there for a couple ticks, a couple seconds, and then it turns on and then she it's on her 40th birthday, which was the, she's as old as, uh, you know, he said he would be when he got back to earth, which would make him the same age. Um, and then that's when we go back to earth and we see Jessica Chastain's right character because we're, we're watching, we're watching her on the screen. And then when the video ends, mm -hmm. then we switch over back to earth, you know, with her turning it off on her side. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Th that was very well done. They, they spent, you know, 23 years and some change on that planet and Murph grew up that entire time. She never made a video and she decided to do it when her heart told her it also happened to be, Seven seconds after he finished watching all of Casey Affleck's right uh, video, so. yeah, and and you could sense the you know 
she wasn't just making the video because she missed her dad. She's making because she was still pissed at him. And like I was saying Very earlier, you can totally feel that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And just the sass in it of you said when you came back, we would be the same age. Well, that's today. Where are you? Right. Guess what? You're not here. Mm-hmm. So we we get to see uh, that Brand gets to listen to a message from her dad. Right. Right. And and uh, and then we also at this point we discover that there is only enough fuel for one planet choice. For one more. Right. Right. Because they're not going home. Well, how about this? He he's planning on going home. But Bran, she's like, that's that's what Plan B is about. Right. So they have to decide which planet to go to. And so there's a discussion of either going to Dr. Mann's or what was Edmonds. The, or uh, Dr. Edmonds. Uh, is planet. It Edmonds or Edmund? Edmonds. Edmonds, okay. Yeah. And turns out, apparently, that Brand has a personal preference based on feelings for one of these two scientists that I wasn't aware of before it was mentioned by Cooper. How did Cooper figure that out? I don't know. Read her file. Mm. I don't know. There's a lot of time gaps. I thought it was because when earlier on she talked a little bit about Edmonds, maybe he sensed in her voice that she had feelings for him. He's got to be picking up keys, you know, clues based off the time that they're spending together. Yeah, and he even questions Tars, right? Mm-hmm. Bef- the first time before they go to sleep. He's Why are you whispering? They can't hear you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, and this is kind of where love comes up. And this is where we learn that Bran believes in love and that it's not just a feeling. It's more than that, mm-hmm. you know. She she thinks it's quantifiable. Yeah, that there well, is not, a physical not, connection. Yeah. Yeah. It's it well, I mean right now and in, in the movie it's not quantifiable but you know the her whole argument is love has been around for all of humans species experience um and we have yet to understand it as far as you know metrics and quantifying it but look how far their brains got them right through space and all that stuff and sure. so now it's uh going back to inception is taking a leap of faith and then, in the meantime, on Earth... We see that Murph and Tom have a very strained relationship. Yes, and she's like, I don't know why you're farming, and he's like, this is what we do. And, yeah, they obviously haven't been close over the years because, you know, Murph just took off. We find out that Brand is dying. Right, she goes to visit Professor Brand in the hospital. Right. What did you guys think of this bit, uh, Michael Caine coming clean? Holy shit. I don't know if I felt it the first, because like I said, I hadn't watched it all the way through, but when he you know, was talking there, I always kind of felt like maybe there wasn't. Maybe it was all about, because they were so thorough about what plan B was, that maybe there really wasn't a plan A. Sure. Exactly, yeah. to the point you know, where uh, Wes Bentley's character, before, when, before they go to Miller's planet, uh, Cooper can kind of elicit you know, through the same details that he figured out that Edmonds and uh, Hathaway where it had a love interest, you know, that Bentley's, you know, plan A doesn't really match with his plan A. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it does make exact sense why he came up with plan A because he knew hope. Well, he hope and he knew the best way to keep Matthew McConaughey involved was to make it for the idea of you're doing this for your children, you're doing this for family, you're doing this for love. And you need to get them off this planet. And they basically used the father in him to get him to do all this. And he did it. 
Yeah. You know, and it and it's it's soul crushing and it's world crushing, especially for Murph, mm-hmm. you know, because she is so angry with her father. She says, you know, you left us here to die. Yeah. She basically says to him while he's on his deathbed, did my father know? Yeah. Yeah. But he never answers. Yeah. So. Well, he does. He just <laughs> he answers, says, do not go gentle into that good night. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I think also plan A was was for the greater good. The, the greater, greater good. good. The species. Uh, Michael Caine, when he's walking Coop through the station uh, earlier in the mo- movie, he's. I think that's when it is. He, he says something uh, to the point that we need to begin thinking as a species, not as an individual. So the message is delivered, and I found it interesting that uh, the message is delivered as they're taking off and we see TARS listening to the message that, that is being currently conveyed to the Endurance. And it's like, what if TARS is part of the Plan B agenda and knows about Plan A? That, that crossed my mind. You know, what if he erases the, the, the message? That We've seen so many science fiction movies where the robot is the bad guy. Well, you know, that's the, what puts it into our heads. He's only set at 90% honesty. That's true, too. And the fact of you got to go back to Hal, the computer that rebelled against the humans, tried to kill them. Yeah, that's exactly why we thought for that brief moment TARS was going to do it. So they figure out that they're going to go to man's planet versus Edmund's planet because... decides. Well, well, Romley Romley jumps on board with them because they think that the the data is more promising that they have received from man. And when they want to put it to a vote, Hathaway walks away. Right, yeah, right. On the second planet, the crew awakens the explorer man from cryostasis. He reveals to Cooper that he lied about the planet's habitability in the hope that someone would rescue him. Romley dies in an explosion when he attempts to access the system logs, while man tries to kill Cooper and hijack the Endurance. Man is blown up when he fails to dock properly with the Endurance. Cooper regains control of the damaged ship He initiates a slingshot maneuver around Gargantua to propel it to the third planet, but he has to sacrifice himself and Tars by detaching the probe and falling into the black hole to enable Amelia to reach the planet. This scene of basically them arriving at the ice planet was Kip Thorne's, uh, one of his few complaints he had about the scientific realism in this movie. I look and I personally liked how they kind of they fly in and you notice they like bump into the cloud and they break one of the clouds because the clouds are so frozen. Yeah. Well, later on in on that ice planet, they're shown walking on the clouds. Did you get that when they look down? You can almost see the planet through a hole in the ice. No. No. Yeah, they're actually walking on the clouds. And Thorne brought up the the fact of even if the clouds froze. They still wouldn't have a consistency enough to support people's weight. So it's a lot like Dr. Man's data. When I first saw that planet, I was, I mean, you know, without knowing that the data was fake to lure them there, I was, does that planet look habitable? No. no. <laughs> no. I kept thinking, who's going to want to live on a big Hoth planet? Kind of like the whole water planet, right? You're flying in and you're like, what the fuck? I mean, there was nothing flat. And I get that they hone in on the beacon, but they have a fucking spaceship. 
Why don't they take a couple laps around the planet? Resources, dipshit. Well, You've whatever. said it yourself. Yeah. Well, supposedly man's <laughs> man's information, and he talks about it in his little speech that he gives, uh, but is that the deeper you go into the planet, the more hospitable it is, and that there's, you know, air down there that's breathable. There's a there's, surface. There's a surface. Yeah. There's veg, you know, vegetation, things like that. You just have to go deeper. Yeah, but he made all that yeah, up. Yeah, he, so. he is lion so what so what you guys think of this whole bit from the time they land and wake up damon to you know was it a big surprise for anybody the first time they saw it that it was matt damon it was for me i didn't think it would be damon it was for me i didn't know he was in it yep but he sells it you know he he wakes up and immediately grabs onto cooper because his plan worked yeah someone came to get him well he he said you know the before he reveals any of the truth of the whole thing was that he was basically taking a, a deep sleep and didn't set a wake up time because he figured this is the last time he's going to sleep. Sure, absolutely. And, absolutely. Uh, uh, one of the great things uh, back to when uh, Michael Caine's walking Coop through NASA, Coop questions the naming convention of Lazarus, and Michael Caine goes, well, "Lazarus came back to dead," and uh, Coop goes, "Yeah, but he had to die in the first place." Right. And then that's what. Damon is so fixated on when he's reawakened. He's like, pray you don't ever learn what that's like, you know, being so, without anybody. Yeah, right. exactly. To never see anybody ever again. The yeah. loneliness and all that. Yeah, because, yeah. yeah. Cause they reveal early on in the movie that these, I think it was 12 astronauts that they sent out. Uh, first of all, they didn't have any family connections and they knew it was a one way journey that if their planet wasn't sustainable, they were there alone to die. Which I like the line when it's all found out. He says, hence the bravery. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, so uh, man's there. They are, you know, excited to find him. They're trying to get the research. And I kind of thought things were a little fishy when uh, they talk about his robot. Exactly what I was thinking. And, and you know, he's like, oh, no, no, I'll fix it. Blah, yeah, blah, basically blah. he said he, like, he started to malfunction. Yeah, uh, so I knew there maybe something might I thought, be up a little bit. I thought at this point, TARS would call it out and said, let let me go check on him. Because uh, he why would his, yeah, why would his robot start to malfunction? Right. Damon goes, right. Uh, no, he needs a human touch. No. Because he, 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 he's questioning. He's like, should I take a look at the logs or whatever? And right. Like, no, he needs a human touch. One thing that I didn't make the correlation with, which is when I was just watching the movie, was the interesting naming convention that they came up with, naming him Dr. Man. Dr. Mankind. Because, yeah, exactly. He represents mankind at its worst. That, you know, supposedly we are a selfish people supposedly living and, living in the clouds living in the yeah exactly and that we will do whatever it takes for our own survival for our own benefit mm-hmm. and that's exactly what matt damon's character is absolutely and so um he tells he's gonna take coop down to the surface or whatever and and coop's like look i got you guys here this is all good but i'm going home yeah. because we get uh the video Right. This is where we find out that uh, right. Brand dies. Brand, and- Brand listens to the video, and and then we have Man confessing that yeah he knew about this when he left. Right. And then she's like, "Did you know, uh, Murphys in the video? Do you know?" And I I credit Hathaway and McConaughey because it looked legitimately like they didn't know mm-hmm. that they were believing in Plan A, but Man knew probably. 
Uh, that so, or so did West Bentley. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, but uh, man, self-preservation kicked in, and he faked the data to get them there to rescue him because he didn't want to die there. One thing that kind of bothered me about this whole thing, and if he had just said in the beginning. I made up all the shit. This planet's not sustainable. I think they immediately would have gone to, to, okay, let's figure out how to get off this planet and get to the other planet and would have taken him anyway. They were limited on resources, so I argue that read Lord of the Flies. I don't know if they would have left him behind. But they are not necessarily limited on resources exponentially so because we happen to lose Doyle. And they would have had whatever resources. I know there wasn't much left. But whatever Dr. Mann had, they could have used some of his resources. Well, Mann, I think, is in, under the thinking that I put humanity at risk here just to get my ass off this, so there can't be any witnesses. Okay. So yeah. I think he tries to get rid of Coop. He obviously put the self-detonation into his robot, and at some point would have taken care of Hathaway, or they would have all left together. And but four, But four people and a robot takes more resources to get off and get home than two, mm-hmm. right? So I, I, I think that's what it came down to. But what was he going back to? He didn't care. He just wanted to leave. Yeah, I know, but well, still. No, he just didn't want to die. He didn't want to die alone. He wanted to, from what I gathered, he wanted to continue on the mission, the plan B, to probably Emmett's planet and start the repopulation process. Yeah, possibly. It's kind of what I got. What did you think of man's, like speech while he's trying to kill Coop about the last faces and love and all of that. I thought that was kind of an interesting. It's pretty fucked up. A little bit. You know, that the, when you die, the last thing you see is the faces of people you I, I I liked the bit where I thought was kind of fucked up is when he says, uh, I can't watch this happen. I thought that I could, but I can't. <laughs> he's, 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 yeah. I thought I could watch you suffer, Kate, and die. But it turns out that I can't. And yeah. he asked, can you see your children? Yeah. Well, that's fucked up. <laughs> well, yeah, I thought it was interesting because he brings up the whole thing of the last faces you see are your children. But I almost felt like that's what Coop needed. Basically, bringing up his children and all that was... Light a fire and... Light a fire yeah. for his survival skill, you know, They whatever. say it in the movie, survival instinct is humans' greatest source of inspiration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We do also have Murph explaining about... Uh, her her childhood ghost and that they need to get more data and that was the conundrum that professor brand had and they knew that if they got more data then potentially they could crack the code which means that they need to send tars into the black hole right and so uh murph and topher grace go to the house and they're they're originally trying to get uh, Lois and the kid out of there because they're sick and Dover's like, you got to leave now. But Casey Affleck's like, no, this is my family, my farm, and they're not going anywhere, right? So as they're driving away, uh, that's when the realization to Murph comes in. She goes, I got to get in that room and solve this, I guess, or, or look for my ghost or whatever. So he turns around, they turn around, they light the fields on fire as a diversion to get Casey Affleck out of there, and then they run back in and they're getting Lois and the kid out. And in the meantime, she's uh, Murph is up in the room looking for the next clue or, or trying to put things together. And that's where she's at. It's really interesting how we go back and forth. Uh, we jump back and forth repeatedly with these two story arcs, what's going on with Murph uh, trying to deduce the clues that she thinks are there for her in her adult life now, as well as what man is 
trying to accomplish with getting Coop out of the way. Right. Right. Did you get the feeling, I, I don't know if she really said it at this point, but Murph is starting to do decode that these might be messages from her father, that her ghost might be messages from her father? Like, uh, a little bit. Because she, she, uh, Topher Grace asks her what about, like, why are we doing this? Like, you know, what is it? And she's like, it's more of a feeling. And then that's when she explains that, you know, my dad called it a ghost. And I think they said that because they thought I was scared of it. Right, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I do think that she was more curious and intrigued. It's during this time that we also get the dramatic organ music. Thank you for the epicness. I love when, uh, well, I I there's a lot of symbolism, John, you said, you know, about the naming convention being man, um, like mankind, um, and just his stubbornness. Uh, going up to uh, dock with uh, the space station, you know, he's like, we can have this discussion after I take control. <laughs> um, and then the whole explosion, it's great because he's, you can tell he's on his soapbox and he goes, there's a moment. And then it blows up. <laughs> I did. First of all, I did not. See, I knew he was going to die. I knew there was oh, be yeah. some kind of explosion. I did not see it coming that he would be mid-sentence because I kind of wanted him to finish whatever he was going to say. Well, it it took me by surprise. It made me jump. Yeah, because he just gets sucked right out. Yeah. He thinks he knows how to do this, and he goes, I'm just going to override it manually. I'm still going to dock it. And And it turns out that uh, TARS made it so he couldn't. So maybe TARS knew something that they didn't. Mm -hmm. I got the impression that it wasn't TARS that initiated it. I I got Because Brand is the one that said that or maybe it was Cooper that said that um, it was it was uh, that they changed it or something around. Yeah, he said no, Tars says he says it, and Cooper acknowledges that. Oh, and goes, so, oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. Tars did do that. Yeah, and so uh, man blows up. I Romley's thought, blown up. I thought they were fucked at that time when the ship part of it blew up. I thought, well, there goes endurance. What are they going to do fucking now? I guess it's just Plan B, go to the planet. Maybe, but I did like this bit. Uh, when he's trying to dock, because she's like, what are you doing? He goes, I'm going to dock. And it's spinning, and he's got to match the spin. I thought this was well done. This oh, was a cool was shot. badass. Well, yeah. And he says to Tars, you know, if I black out, you take the sticks, right? Did you catch, uh, and again, I had to watch this in a side video, that as they're spinning, um, you can see Anne Hathaway's character kind of look into the spin, and she passes out. Mm-hmm. Whereas Matthew McConaughey's character looks the opposite direction which is i guess what you're supposed to do when you're in a spin like that and that's how he stays awake well i just assume he was a pilot that's why he, was and he knew what he was he doing and he knew what well, he was doing i was just saying that 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 was a key thing they worked into the film of having him you know look that direction because that's what a pilot would do well yeah. arguably one of my favorite moments that really just gets you jacked when it happens is tars or whoever's with them says it's not possible and right matthew mcconaughey goes no it's necessary yeah and, yeah, and and the fact that, you know, fuck the logic. I'm going to do it. Yeah, I, it's I, necessary. Yeah, exactly. I was hoping he would say something like, never tell me the odds. Eh, that might be a little too on the nose. That sounds familiar. Yeah. So they're able to get themselves docked, and now they are able to get themselves back into orbit. And they're going to Edmund's planet. Well, they're going to do a slingshot to get around to Edmund's the black, planet. Yeah. Around the... The black hole, which brings up a whole bunch of different time issues. But uh, we, they basically, uh, Matthew Mahoney realizes the way we're going to do this is we're going to drop TARS into the black hole to save some weight issues so that we have enough power to pull away. Right. 
But he, what he didn't tell Anne Hathaway was that he was going to. Yeah, and that I didn't see either. I, I didn't see the whole big sacrifice of, you know, this now is kind of a turning point for him because if you think about it, he's letting his children go. He's basically decided that he's going to, for the greater good, the, the greater, greater good, basically let go of his connections to his children to save humanity. Yeah. Well, that's why he took the trip in the first place. Well, originally I felt like he was doing it for his children. He was going to save his children. Now it's he is focused on saving humanity. And then we're back with Murph back in the back in her room, and she discovers the wristwatch. And the wristwatch is acting a little kooky. A little kooky. Kind of going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. Which I, I'm curious to know, why is that watch still working? Solar power. That's I did read that because if when you see the very first time that Coop comes out of his suspended animation or when he's in that little cryogenic thing, uh, one of the first things you see him doing is winding his watch. And that's because there was no solar power to keep his watch going. Uh, for Murph, it was the fact that it was on the bookcase and the sun was able to hit it that it kept it going. Yeah. So there you go, Professor. Well, I I, had to read that, too. I just didn't catch that at all. It's like, huh, how convenient that the watch still works after, what, 30 years or whatever. Gotcha. She runs downstairs to confront her brother, and she realizes that this is from Dad, and he is alive, and she is suddenly hugging her brother, and things seem to be getting better because of this at that moment. Eureka. Instead of being crushed, Cooper finds himself inside a five-dimensional tesseract out of view from beyond the event horizon. From inside, he can see moments in time from inside Murph's childhood bedroom. He finds her returning to look for clues to the gravity equation, and he contacts her by manipulating items in the room with gravity to communicate through Morse code. Deducing that this construct has been created by future humans with the ability to time travel, Cooper imparts to her the information she needs to solve the equation. The future beings return him to the solar system. He is reunited with an elderly Murph who has used the gravity equation to enable humanity's exodus from Earth. She advises him to seek out Amelia and he sets off. On the final planet, Amelia removes her helmet and breathes, revealing the planet is capable of sustaining human life and that she was right all along. Roll credits wait you forgot her love interest is dead oh well he didn't say that well she was burying somebody so we all have to assume well plus he had his his patch yeah so it told us who it was so this whole scene of him you know he's in his ship he's flying into the black hole everything's getting crushed everything's disappearing he's about to die and then he just kind of floats into that tesseract what do you think of all that well i thought at first that the ejection that he uses, I was thinking, why would they have that in a space shuttle? But I guess for instances like this. No, no you have those because it's, it's when you have the potential that you could still save your own ass when you are blasting off the, the pad. Before you get up into space, you're able to eject yourself. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, there you go. I guess if you're familiar with the term Tesseract, I always go to the Marvel movies and think of the Cosmic Cube, which was they kept referring to as a Tesseract. I guess really what Tesseract means is cube. 
Well, he did look like he was in a cube esque. Yeah. Now this this whole library thing uh, behind the bookcase uh, tesseract that she was in. Apparently that is supposed to represent when they talk about these future humans, these future beings that, you know, which we've referred to as they and them in this movie, that is how they live now because they live outside of time in the fifth dimension, you know, in this time of gravity and all that. So this was supposed to be created. It was specifically created for Coop so he could visually understand how they live and how they see time. That's why he could visit in this one small place, her room at any time. That's why I thought when I first saw it, the wife put it there because she died. Maybe mm-hmm. she's in that fifth dimension. She would know how, where she would know the most details about how to construct that Tesseract, mm-hmm. right? That's a very good possibility. So that was my that was my theory the first time I saw mm-hmm. it. I was just grateful that TARS was there to tell me what the hell that was. Yeah. Were yeah. they communicating with him? Because he said, well, they created this for you, so you can go and do blah, 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 and all this. How did he know so much? Who knows? I took it as Matthew McConaughey was they. Because mm-hmm. this doesn't this doesn't even start unless Matthew McConaughey gets into this black hole. Because Matthew, Matthew, huh? What black hole? The, the, bla- the black hole is they, right? So Well, they is actually supposed to be the people who are living outside of everything. So... Because gravity, since they live in the fifth dimension and gravity no longer affects them, they can survive within a, gra- a black hole. So they are there. I don't think there is a they at all. There are future I humans think, is what they say. Well, that, but that's how they are. That's how they have to look at it. Mm-hmm. The fact is, if we're doing that, uh, the black hole was out there. They discovered it in 2019, right? And this is where this all starts to take place. And this is where and we all get to. Coop goes, right? who put it there? And my, well, I challenge, well, Black hole, wormhole, whatever. Yeah. Um, but my thought is, I mean, the sky is huge, right? I mean, there's it's infinite. So who's to say that it just wasn't there, right? So potentially nobody put it there. We, as humans, found it. They, who we have to interpret because we can't explain it at that time, is actually Matthew McConaughey. Now, this puts me into a loop mm-hmm. and... It doesn't happen unless he goes to space, but he doesn't go to space unless, unless it happens. Unless it's unless he tells himself to go to space. You know what I mean? And he has to go to space to save humanity. And what better person to help humanity than somebody who's died? Well, this is you're you're hitting exactly where my biggest issue with this movie was is that if you look at they as as I was saying, future humans have evolved beyond space, time, and gravity, all of these dimensions that they're living in a new dimension and they can affect, basically send this message to Coop, you know, or through TARS to Coop that then can go to Murph because the whole movie really, as TARS you know, and Coop figure out, was all about Murph and the whole time was the whole point was to help her solve this equation. And so basically they're sending a message through time and space to get to Murph to solve the equation to save humanity so that they could go on to become these higher beings. Well, you're absolutely right, Don. This is what bothers me is that if humanity net, you know, couldn't survive without that equation, if they would have died off on Earth, then how did these future beings ever in the first place evolve to the point that they could send the message back in time? And so uh, we have our Nolan ending, 
where everything kind of ties up and it's that aha moment where you go, oh, yeah, that's cool. Well, he just happens to be floating now outside of Saturn where he's picked up after he gives the message with the, uh, as you said, the Morse code in the watch. We find it's Morse code in the watch that they, you know, it's moving one big one, one little one, one big one, one little one. So it's giving the Morse code. Uh, and we get his little floating and it just so happens to be there. They're there to pick him up. Right. Because right? they, <laughs> they said, you know, any minute longer and you would have been dead or any yeah. second longer. you would have Yeah. Been dead. You were almost out of air, like five yeah. minutes or something like that. But you know, when, when he's being told that the Tesseract is closing, I figured that, well, they got him into the Tesseract, and so they had an exit strategy for the for him as well. I honestly thought they were going to push him through the bookcase, and then he was just going to pop out. That's what I thought. I, I, I thought he falls out of the Tesseract and dies, you know. And the fact that they conveniently pick him up with only moments to spare in his air tank, there's a good, there, there could be a question to be asked that, does he die? Mm-hmm. Um, I like the ending we get because I'm a glass full kind of guy and he slips through, they find him via our very reminiscent to alien and aliens and uh, Murph has her Eureka. Yep. And they figure the equation out. The world is saved. He wakes up on a sphere. It's basically a, a big, a big floating circle. station, which, yeah. which they subtly reveal. There are several of these yeah. things out there yeah. and they just happen to be on the one that is named uh, the coop, the coop, which is not named after him. It's, no, it's named after, after his daughter. daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was cover. And then they, uh, he gets to see her. And what do you uh, think of that whole thing of of the last moments with Murph? Oh, it's it's fucking hits, heartbreaking, hits, man! Hits me every time. As a father, I couldn't imagine watching one of my children die of old age while I'm not. Well, and that's what she says to him. No ch- no parent should have to watch their child die. And that's why she says go find Bran because I've lived my life and you, her family was there. And she's right. trying to buy family he doesn't even know. Right. And he kept her promise his promise. I mean, well that's 98 the, billion years later, yeah. but he kept his promise well, and he came return. home. He goes, "How'd you know?" Or well, uh you came she says something to the fact you came back and um he says, she I was your ghost. How'd you know? Oh, yeah. How'd, he goes, how'd you know? And she responds, because my dad promised me. Right. Or yeah. my dad told me. Yeah. yeah. Now, here's the question I wanted to ask fathers in this room. Because for me in movies, one of the most biggest heart tuggers are daddy-daughter moments. And when she says, you need to leave because no parent should watch their child die, my first thought is, I would, I would be selfish. I would want since he's just gotten back to her and for him it's only what days or weeks that have passed uh i would want to have every single second even if i have to watch her die i want to absorb every second i can have remaining with my daughter whereas he just turns around and walks out and is would you guys have honored that wish of hers of course i would have yeah dr man wouldn't have because like you said selfish but maybe even though she said that the sentiment she was being selfless Maybe she still wanted her dad to still be there. Well, that's a her problem. I know. She should have just told him. Yeah, absolutely. Just be honest with people. She was being selfless. Because that's how she felt. And and none of us in this room can dictate how she was feeling because, well, we weren't there. And the way it's portrayed to us is she was genuinely saying, go live. But you don't watch me die because you... and, And let's go back again to the conversation between Michael Caine and coop in the space station we need to start thinking as a species not as an individual and they have done that at this point both coop and murph have done that at this point 
So they understand it's not about me. It's not about my time. It's about the species. So if Bran's alone on that planet, she said, go help him. Go help her. Go find Yeah. The coop leaves. He goes to his museum house. And I think that it's funny, you know, does he go? He goes to the house. Not He did that before. That yeah, was before. Yeah, yeah. But he goes to the museum house, and they kind of kept everything the way it, it was. It ends with her monologue. Which she's talking over the. What was the deal with the honesty setting? Why did he keep ratcheting back the honesty setting? Oh, because it was ninety percent uh, humor. He started ninety five percent. No, seventy five percent. It was. It was sixty percent. That, that was the humor one, but the yeah. the honesty setting is set no, to no. ninety in the movie, and then the, he's like diplomatic or uh, honest truth isn't necessarily the best uh, diplomatic solution, whatnot. Right. In the end, then, it was humor, though. And then, but in the end, when he's figuring him out in the station, he sets the honesty setting to ninety five percent, and yeah. then he messes with the humor setting. He goes seventy percent or something, and then the robot goes T minus self destruct in five four or whatever. And then he goes down to forty yeah. percent, or something and then he like goes he, knock, and he goes knock knock, knock and he goes. I can set it lower if you want. Uh, I always thought that it was funny that he had to steal the plane. Why do you have to steal it? Because nobody knew who he was. He's just some random mm, dude. Here, I don't know. Here's my question, and maybe it's because the sphere is too small, but why couldn't all of those floating stations go to the new planet? Well, they're working they were on, on it. They are on the way. Yeah, were, is that what they were working they're on? They are working on it, yeah. Because it made it sound like... Because we find out that the ha- the planet's habitable. So Yeah, because I got the feeling the way they're doing it is these floating stations were going to be for current humanity, and plan B was for the new planet. Nah, um... I, I took it as he was going to go join Bran to continue the and finish the research to get Earth population to continue to that the planet. species. And why wouldn't they send other people to that planet to prepare the way? Because it wasn't written that way, bud. Oh, okay. Limited. Resources. I did think. Did you catch the humor of Murph getting one over on Coop? Uh, uh, setting up the farm life. The fact that. They honored Coop by creating a museum dedicated oh, to his he farming, said that, yeah. and he hated farming. Right, right, right. And she the said, guy who's taking him around is just... Yeah, you love the farming. Yeah. And did you catch the one little thing that when Coop first entered the museum house, that he caught something that showed it wasn't authentic? Uh, there was no dust. All the there was no dust. Screens? He ran oh, his yeah, finger right. along the table yeah. to see if there was any dust. Yeah, but why would there be? Because that would have made it authentic. So I, I got a question. So the this this new colony that we are in that's been set up and you know it's thriving, where, where where'd they get the dirt from Earth? There's plenty of dirt to go around, but okay, but isn't isn't that probably where the the blight is? I couldn't tell if the blight was carried in the dust storms, and maybe the fact that they're getting away from the dust storms that that's why they can now survive. Um, I didn't even ask the question. Well, they this is the first ones to die. The last one to die from hunger will be the first to die from starvation. From suffocation. suffocation. Right. right. So pick your poison. And that, folks, is Interstellar. You know what that big black hole Gargantua kind of reminded me of? A little bit like the Eye of Sauron. Uh Uh-oh. And now it's time for John's... My precious... Moment. 
This is the point in our podcast where I take whatever movie we are currently reviewing and compare it to the greatest movie series ever made, Lord of the Rings. In Interstellar, both Cooper and Murph are Frodo's at, at different points in the movie. Both characters are on a perilous journey to save humanity, facing numerous obstacles and challenges along the way. Frodo must destroy the One Ring to defeat Sauron and save Middle-earth, while both Murph and Cooper must grow beyond their own attachments and hang-ups to save everything that they love. To make this comparison a bit easier and shorter, you're welcome, Don, I'm going to focus the rest of this on Cooper as being our Frodo. Samwise would be Tars, the robot assistant. Like Sam, Tars is a loyal companion who provides support and guidance to our main protagonist, Cooper. Tars assists Cooper in navigating the dangers of space travel and provides valuable insights and advice throughout the journey. Like Sam, Tars is even willing to make sacrifices for the greater good. The The greater greater good. Cooper also can be seen as our Aragorn, but I'm actually going to award that... Cooper can also be seen as our Aragorn, but I'm actually going to award that to Amelia Brand. Like Aragorn, Amelia is a skilled member of the team who is willing to take on different tasks and make the tough choices. She is a strong and independent character who is not afraid to speak her mind and challenges the status quo. She plays a key role also in the success of the mission. And like Aragorn, she is a reluctant leader who in the end has to step up and fulfill her destiny when she travels to that final planet alone. Legolas would be Doyle. He is shown to be quick thinking and resourceful when he comes up with the plan to use explosive devices to escape the massive wave on the water planet. Gimli would be represented by Romilly. While he is fiercely loyal to the group and their mission, He's also the one who often questions various actions and decisions. Also like Gimli, in the beginning, he seems to have the most trouble adjusting to the journey and fitting in. But later, he is an asset to the group that they come to depend on. Gandalf in Interstellar is represented by Professor Brand. Like Gandalf, Professor Brand is wise and a respected figure who guides and advises our heroes throughout their journey. He provides critical information and insights that help the crew understand the mission and the challenges that they face, and he plays key role in the resolution of the story. Also, like Gandalf, if it hadn't been for his death, our heroes may not have ever made it as far as they did. So that makes our fellowship Cooper, Tars, Amelia, Doyle, Romilly, and Professor Brand. Now, when it comes to Dr. Mann... I think I had talked to you previously, Don, and you thought he was more of a Gollum-type character. Well, that's what I actually had chosen for him, Gollum. Just like Gollum began as Smeagol, a peaceful river folk hobbit, Dr. Mann began as a heroic astronaut on a mission to save humanity. However, his own journey twisted him into a selfish predator only interested in his own survival even at the cost of the lives of others, to get what was most precious to him. Dr. Mann could also be seen as Saruman the White. He starts out on the same side of our heroes, but eventually gives in to his own weaknesses 
to focus on his own desires and agenda. Sauron, in Interstellar, is represented by the Blight. It's the enemy of humanity who represents the impending extinction of the human race. It can be seen as a shadow or evil force that threatens all of humanity, much like Sauron threatened all of Middle-earth. It is the struggle to survive in Interstellar that can be seen as an analogy for the struggle against Sauron in Lord of the Rings. So what is the precious? What is the One Ring? In Interstellar, the ring is represented by the Endurance spacecraft and the crew that uses it to travel through the wormhole. Besides the fact that it's shaped like a ring, just like the One Ring, the Endurance is a powerful tool that holds the fate of humanity in its hands. It represents a better future, but also has the potential for destruction if it falls into the wrong hands. The crew must protect and use the Endurance wisely in order to achieve their goal of finding a new planet and saving humanity. The Endurance also has a corrupting influence on some of the characters, particularly Dr. Man, who becomes obsessed with his own survival and willingness to sacrifice others to achieve it. It's through the symbolic destruction of part of the Endurance that led to Cooper's sacrifice, which also led to saving humanity. And there you have it, my comparison between Interstellar and Lord of the Rings. Bring on the grades. What'd you think of that, Keenan? That was impressive. I don't have anything to argue against. I, I like that my favorite part easily is the uh, Dr. Man uh, turning evil to get back to the Endurance of the Ring, uh, just like Gollum's trying to get back to his precious. <laughs> so that was, that was great. That was, I like that. So if you had to give him a grade, what would it be? A+. Plus. Holy shit. I think that's, a, is that the first A you've ever gotten? Keenan, you are welcome back anytime. Thank you. <laughs> no, uh, the first A plus he got was uh, when Kevin Smith did it for him. Oh, that's right. Well, you guys gave him A plus. You gave Kevin Smith the A plus. You didn't give me the A plus. Oh, fair point. Fair point. But the precious moments, <laughs> that was, that got the first A plus. But A plus from Keenan, what do you got there, guy? How are you going to follow that up? With a lower grade. <laughs> You which can't get would much higher. Which would be? I, I like the blight being Sauron. I thought that Tars made a uh, a truer Gandalf than a Sam. I think that uh, Gimli. Yeah, I was indifferent towards that. So I'm looking at a C plus. C plus. Um, I like the fact that when I watched it, I thought man would be Gollum, and yet he said that as well i like the ring actually i didn't think i was going to just because i thought oh it looks like a ring so he's gonna call it the ring but you did a very good job of explaining that and i'm gonna go ahead and give you a b plus buddy all right we'll take it a plus b plus c plus actually hold on uh sorry john i'm gonna go an a i gotta get rid of the plus i have to disagree a little bit with the legolas comment um just because i think uh west bentley was kind of um uh, it's hard to say because I would say it's deceptive if you're taking into consideration our, you know, protagonist's point of view. Um, a, a argument could be made that you know he's just uh, there doing his duty regardless of what plan they're going for. But you know, trying to get Cooper back to trying to save people 
still on the planet. He didn't, I don't feel like, buy into that as much. And I think for me, that makes him a little bit uh, insincere. Less noble? Less noble, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Can we go back and edit this so that you start my music before he changes my grade? And that was John's. Moment. All right, what do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this flick? I think I'm ready to rate this flick. John, you want to rate this flick yet? All righty. Professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie that we think is cinematic gold. Anytime somebody says, hey, you want to watch Interstellar? Fuck yeah, I do. That's a fucking awesome movie. A one fuck movie is where you see it once and you really have no desire to see it again. You've seen it for whatever reason you wanted to see it and it completely underwhelmed you and you're never going to watch that again. And what's a zero? A zero fuck movie is a movie where, oh, for shit's sake, what the hell was that? Why would you make me watch that? I want two hours and 49 minutes of my life back. What a kick to the balls. Or in other words, we just don't give a fuck. All right. Uh, tradition says that the guest goes first. Yes, Keenan. Six. Six what? Did you not hear on a fucks. scale of one to five fucks? Fine. I'll go five fucks. Is that spelled with a PH? Sure. You can spell it however you want, buddy. Cool. So that's the briefest review you've ever received on this show. Well, was I supposed to say more? It's up to you. Everything's set up until this point. We'll explain that. So, all right. Five. So, cinematic gold from Keenan. All right. Which two of you clowns want to go? Or should I go? I'll go next. You want to go next? I think I'll go next. But before I do, can you finally get back on track and guess? What my rating was. I have a gut feeling of what you're going to give this film, but I feel like if I give that gut feeling, I'm going to be way completely off. I think that's just just a parasite. And it's just going to piss me off, okay? I think that the way you've talked about it and talking to you yesterday about it and just the whole... Research? Yeah, the research and the whole scientificness of it, I think you dug it. I'm afraid to think that you dug it, which means that Get you were you were broadening your horizons, which also scares me a little bit. But I'm gonna go out on a limb, and I'm probably wrong, which is really gonna piss me off. You are going to give Interstellar four fucks. That your final answer? That's my final answer. Okay. In Interstellar, we journey through space with Cooper and team in a perilous race to find a new home for the human race and escape a dying Earth's dusty embrace. But as they venture deep into the unknown, their mission takes on a life of its own. As time and space begin to warp and bend, their quest for survival seems to have no end. With stunning visuals and a gripping plot, Interstellar delivers what it's got. A sci-fi epic that will leave you in awe, and leave you wanting to talk about what you just saw. The ending is a mind-bending ride that leaves us with more questions inside. But despite its ambiguity and tugs at the heartstrings, the film's impact is worth the ending sting. So if you're a fan of space and science fiction and don't mind a plot that requires some conviction, then Interstellar is definitely no lame duck and thus I award it Four dusty fucks. Nice. Uh, all right, you or me there, tough guy. So, Interstellar. I thought that 
this movie was going to be more challenging for me to watch because the first time around that I saw it, I was uh, underwhelmed by it. I thought it was going to be uh, more epic than it was. The, uh, the, the, the Tesseract angle of the third act making the story complete itself uh, it was it was a bit of a conundrum for me why it was set up the way that it was. I was able to follow it a lot easier uh, this time around, being uh, conscientious about how this story is being told and, and what is being told during this storyline. Matthew McConaughey, uh, I thought he was great in this, and he is having um, a strong character in Cooper, and I got behind Cooper, and I got behind Murph, young and and uh, middle age and old, I, I I really appreciated uh, that character. After that, I was indifferent about Anne Hathaway's character. I was indifferent about Professor Brand, and Professor Brand having uh, the the twist of that it is a conundrum that he has no solution to was crushing when I had that happen in the story. And knowing that that was coming around again, and and you're seeing all that, it's like. Man, the earth is totally fucked. What a downer. And that's part of what made me uninterested in wanting to watch the movie again because so much of the movie is so uh, so down. I realize it ends on a high note because, you know, that's what we get, the happy ending of, oh, earth is saved. Well, sort of, the inhabitants of earth are saved. And we have uh, some some epic music in there every once in a while that always makes me oh, this is like so important. And when that happens and it hits me over the head with it, I don't usually go for it. For whatever reason, I, I, I feel like it's it's being pushed down my throat when I have the, the over-the-top epic music. In general, I think that it is an enjoyable watch, and with that, I'm giving it three fucks. Three fucks from the professor, four fucks from the comic book guy, cinematic gold from our guest Keenan. I guess it is my turn. You go next. Thank you, buddy. Actually, I don't really care. You guys good? I'm going to take off. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. Go ahead. He just, he throws it at me. So I remember seeing Interstellar in the theater and not being overly overwhelmed by it. Uh, I remember thinking, you know, after watching the Dark Knight stuff and Inception and the Prestige and all this, I was expecting a lot out of Christopher Nolan. And I will be the first to admit seeing it then in the theater, I probably didn't get it. You know what I mean? And that, and that kind of puts a sour taste in your mouth. And over the years, Keenan and I have gone back and forth over interstellar and it being one of his favorite Christopher Nolan movies and it being on the, one of the bottom of mine, I will say that going back and watching it again last night, I have a new appreciation for it. I enjoyed it much more and I understood it this time around. And I think that helps with my enjoyment. Um, the whole time loop, and that it doesn't happen without him going and finding the coordinates, this, that, and the other. Okay. Sometimes you just got to accept it for what it is and just run with the story. And if it's a good payoff, whether it's up to um, the viewer's interpretation or not, if it's a good payoff, then it's a good story. I thought that the story ending with him going to say goodbye to Murph, getting that closure, and then going to help Brand uh, uh, instills hope. And I think that's what Christopher Nolan does with this film. The Hans Zimmer can't go wrong. Christopher Nolan's cast can't go wrong. His editing, uh, his 
cinematography, all of it. So with all of that being said, I'm going to give Interstellar four solid fucks. With four solid fucks from me, four dusty fucks from the comic book guy, and three fucks from the professor, that gives Interstellar an average of 3.7 fucks, which now ties it in the 15th spot with Dogma, Talladega Nights, Halloween, and The Outsiders. It is slightly better than 1917, Top Gun, and Commando, and slightly worse than Booksmart, The Blues Brothers, and hell or high water. Hmm. Keenan is completely rolling his eyes over there. But, I mean, that's the beauty of the uh, average, right? I guess so. Uh, what you take away from this movie is love. So, like Jackie Moon said, E-L-E. Everybody love everybody. That's right. Yeah. All right. That is going to wrap it up for this episode of Three Guys in a Flick. If you would like to know which movie we are going to be reviewing next, please check out the website. And speaking of which, John, where can they find us? Well, they can always find us at our website, threeguysinaflick.com, where we post, as you mentioned, teasers for our next movie. We also have places there where you can submit a movie into our helmet if you'd like to see us review it next. We have blog posts. We have all of our show notes and just about anything else I can think of putting there. You could also find our podcast at any place that hosts podcasts and all of social media. All right. I just want to thank Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for always listening. Keep on listening. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Jill. And I want to thank anyone else who listens and who has suggested a movie. I want to say a special thanks to Keenan for coming on to the show and talking about Interstellar. Did you have a good time? I did. Good. Good. Yeah. Are you going to come back? Mm, maybe. He said something about Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yeah, there is that. I would do Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yeah, so there you go. So am I apparently st- musicals. You like musicals on the show? Am I? Am I? No, ban- still banned for yes. two months. Yes, you're still three months, fucker. Yeah. Don't try to weasel out of that. I, I South tried. Park, bigger, longer, and uncut. Oh yeah, Just blame Canada. Well, we'll do that when he goes to Italy. How about that? So for three guys in a flick, I'm Don. I'm John. I'm Ken. I'm Keenan. Take care. He hasn't done the porn now. And I'm not supposed to talk to this, am I? I will respect the two gentlemen on my left and right. As for the one in front of me, I don't know. And worry about our place in the dirt. Fucked up the one word I said was important. Thanks, bud. This is our first Christopher Nolan movie, isn't it? I'm surprised. No, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'm sorry. The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight. Yeah, let's, let's, let's not say that at all. Well, then I, we should do that before I read. That's what I'm saying. Okay. I thought that's what you were going to do. Oh. So we're talking about what we need to talk about, which was him. Correct. <laughs> we do not interrupt the comic book guy. There was a pause. I thought he was done. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm never done. But despite its ambu... 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 Ambiguity. But, besi- but despite its ambu... Ambiguity Ambiguity But despite its ambiguity Alright, does anybody have a porn name for this? I do The movie? Yeah What's your porn name? It's gotta be better than the professor's Dr. Man's Forceful Docking Ah, what do you got? What do you got? I got nothing Into Stella (laughs) I think the comic book guy wins I like that. Well, Professor? No. All right. Fuck off. Good night.